been talking about the wrath of God the last couple of weeks. Well, let's pray first. Father, we pray by your Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that understand. Our desire, Lord, is to know you more, to understand your ways, to yield ourselves as instruments of righteousness in your hand, to use according to your good pleasure. So we give this time to you. We pray that you would anoint not just the speaking, but the hearing. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Wrath. God's divine anger. We looked at that for the last couple of weeks. We looked at um, uh, the wrath of abandonment, where what happens when God gives a society over. And, and, and the reason that he gives a society over is because they gave up on him. And then one of the things that ties to, flows from God's wrath is the subject of judgment. We're going to look at judgment. This, yeah, gee whiz, we get to go from wrath to judgment. <laughs> Lucky us. But you know, it's, it, there is a real comfort that comes from having a right understanding of the judgment of God as believers. For the unbelieving world, that's a different story. We're, we're going to look at that. But as I was looking at this and thinking about it, there is a ton of opinions out there about what happens to us when we die. How many times have you heard, well, the man upstairs, number one, he's not a man. Well, his son is. (laughs) Number two, he's not upstairs. Yeah, he's in heaven. But there's just this kind of this ethereal, wishy-washy thing uh, that amounts to man's own imaginations about God. When indeed this book, God's word, it lays out the reality uh, of of who created us, where we came from, what went wrong with man, how it can be put right. It tells us who we're answerable to, how we're to live. There's no other earthly source for this knowledge. Everything else is conjecture. And as people of the word, we don't want to live our lives on conjecture, on our own opinions about God. We want to live them on the solid ground of God's holy, divinely inspired, inerrant word. It's not about opinions. This book also lays out the reality of eternal judgment and the fact that it will happen to all of us, believer and unbeliever alike. We will face the judgment of God. Now, there's a different judgment. We'll look at that. We're going to get into it. There are two judgments that the the Bible calls out, and we'll look at both. But it lays out clearly the consequences of our own personal decisions, actions, and behaviors. This is serious stuff. And people, again, they have an arrogant casualness about their eternal destiny. It can make up with all kinds of things. Well, my God, again, I've heard that so many times over the years. Well, my God wouldn't do this. Well, your God's not in charge. (laughs) And, And That we are clear on. What happens when man decides to add his own ideas, his own impressions, his own opinions about God, is that what happens is man, whenever he does that, he lowers God. He actually puts God in subjection to his own reasoning. How foolish is that? So as I mentioned, the last two weeks we looked at wrath. What happens when a society turns from God? The result being that he turns from them. Today, we're going to be looking at God as the ultimate impartial judge. 
We're going to go through the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 2 together. I want to read through the whole section because it's important that we sort of fly over this before we get in and start taking it apart, unpacking it. So in verse 1 of Romans 2, we read, Therefore, you're inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge and practice those practicing these such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness or kindness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness, And your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. In Romans chapter 1, as I mentioned, we've been looking at that. In last week, we looked at Romans one eighteen to 32. Actually, the last couple of weeks is sort of a two-part deal. Um, Paul paints a striking picture of evil men and women who've been given over. We looked at that. Given over is used three times in that passage, that God gave them over. They've abandoned God. As a result, God abandoned them to the consequences of their own sin. However, at the end of Romans 1, a very important question remains unanswered. What about so-called, and, and yeah, I'm going to do it in quotes, good people? Yeah, and understanding that the Bible teaches clearly, no one is good but God alone. Uh, we see that clearly with Jesus, with the rich young ru- ruler. Tell me, good people. No, no, why are you calling me good? Nobody's good but God. But what I'm talking about is moral people. What about the moralist? The people who are not in that cesspool of sin that we've been looking at, and that they, they have moral fiber in their lives. They live a good life. They live a moral life. What about them? And, and I, as well as the Apostle Paul, glad that you asked. <laughs> Where do they fit in? The people who haven't abandoned all sense of right and wrong. In chapter 2, Paul looks at the moralistic man. The moralist agrees with Paul's condemnation of the heathen in chapter 1 because he sees himself as better and therefore uncondemned. And that produces a false sense of security in God's economy. You've got to understand that. And, you know, I love the way that Paul did this. And I I have to confess, I intentionally did it with you. In chapter one, he builds this strong case about these people who are given over, these people that they're given over to a reprobate mind. And, you know, they add sin upon sin. And it's this whole descending deal and all of that. And, and, I did not make reference to chapter two, except for just a little bit at the end of last week's message said, (laughs) before you get too arrogant about thinking, well, I'm glad I'm not like them. Chapter two is coming. 
because he builds this whole case talking about the Gentiles, them, and then he says you. And, and, and he, it's, it's as though he just, he, he just steps up and he just bonks them with this truth. It's a slap. It's, it's a harsh reality. And he gets right into it when he is start, when he goes into you, oh man. It reminds me of Romans chapter nine where he says, who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Can't the guy, the potter, can't he make some vessels for glory and some for destruction? And we'll get to that. Great study. I'm looking forward to that. But he essentially is poking them at this point. And when he says, who are you, oh man? It's it's a poke in the chest. He's saying, wake up. I'm going to show you something here about the righteousness of God, about the sinfulness of man, about your own depravity, even if you're a moral person. A person understands the gospel uh, only when he understands that he is guilty before God, all of us. And that's where Paul's going in this section. Every single one of us stands where not for the grace of God, that comes about through simple faith in the finished work of Christ on that cross, that we stand condemned, no matter how good or how bad we have lived. So he's talking about whether the immoral man that we see in chapter 1, the they, or the moral man, the you, that we see in chapter 2, because he changes the pronoun up on us here. He talks about whether it's the Gentile in chapter 1 or the Jew who he's primarily addressing in chapter 2. Here he's writing specifically to the Jew, but he casts a wider net insofar as he begins with the word, therefore. Now understand, remember, in the original, there are no chapter breaks. All right? He has just finished a 24-count indictment. At the end of chapter one, we'll go through it again briefly here. And then he says, therefore, you pretty tough stuff. Chapter two, verse one, therefore, you are inexcusable. O man, whoever you are who judge for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things. Essentially, what he's saying here is God doesn't grade on the curve. You guys remember that? I remember Mrs. Shipman at high school of biology. <laughs> she, she graded on the curve. If there was a really, really, really lousy student, <laughs> they were at kind of the bottom there. And then there was a really, really good student at the top. If you were anywhere in the middle, you were good. But if there was a person, if it was a whole class full of really smart people, <laughs> and that person at the bottom, that person got a D or an F, because she graded on the curve, the worst to the best. He doesn't do that. That's not how God grades. He, his judgment is fixed. It's absolutely fixed. Uh, Romans 20, or Revelation 21 8, uh, the, the apostle John being given the apocalypse, he, he says this, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death. We'll talk about the second death as we go. But in this particular verse, he puts liars and murderers in the same category. They are both guilty before God and will be judged evenly. His judgment is fixed. It's not like us where there are worser and better people. And that's what Paul is saying here, that we all stand condemned were it not for the grace of God resting upon the lives of believers. 
It's interesting, the word they, uh, referring to chapter 1, is it's, he uses the word they seven times in chapter 1, referring again to the Gentiles, to the heathen. He uses the word you just in verse 1 alone of chapter 2. He uses it five times. You see it, it's there. Five times to the Jews. He applies this to moral people. Uh, you could look at the... Now, he wrote this to the Jews, but... You could also look at it as people who live by a moral code in our day to the moralist. And so as we look at this and as we apply it to our lives, it could also apply to what we would call church people <laughs> because we live a certain way, don't we? When he says you're inexcusable in verse one, it literally means you are without a defense. You're defenseless. You, there's, you can't make a defense for the way that you are, the way that you're living. And when he's saying that, he's not saying it's because they were judging others. And you look at chapter one, you can't help but make judgments about the people that are being spoken of there. You can't look out at our society today and not make judgments about the way that people are living today, the things that they're pulling, the things that they're getting away with. Horrible out there. He's not saying that that's the bad thing, but he's saying that they had no excuse for their own sins before God. When he uses the word judge, the, the, what, what his angle on there, the word literally translates condemn. He's not talking to adjudicate like the scales. He's saying when you condemn other people, the point is the judgment of God will hold every single person to account and without excuse. When he says you who judge practice the same things, he's referring back to chapter 1 in verses 18 to 32 that we've covered. But especially in, in chapter 1, verse 28, where we read, God gave them over to a debased or a reprobate mind to do those things which are not fitting. Now, what he's doing here is he's holding the moralist up to the same thing that condemned the immoral person. So as I go through this list, apply it to your own life. And you'll see what he's getting at here. He says, you're filled with all unrighteousness. Have you ever done anything wrong that's unrighteous? <laughs> I saw somebody stare at there. <laughs> the sexually immoral person. Wickedness. Covetousness. Have you ever coveted something that somebody else has? Maliciousness. Have you ever been malicious towards another? Maligned somebody? Full of envy. I like the definition of, of envy is, is the difference between jealousy and envy. Is jealousy is you've got one, I want one. Envy is you've got one, I want yours. And, and, and so have you ever been envious? I didn't go through this list on purpose last week and we're not going to go in depth, but it has to be interpreted in light of what follows in chapter two. Again, no chapter breaks here. He's saying you're without excuse. And he's referring back to this when he says, therefore, murder, strife, deceit, evil-minded, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, and unmerciful. All of us fall short of the glory of God. In verse 32, and this is his point, he says, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Again, we looked at that last week. What he says there is, therefore they, in, in chapter one, he says, they are without excuse. Here in chapter two, he says, therefore you 
are without excuse. This is equal opportunity condemnation. It flows to all men unless you have that one transaction in your life pertaining to the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. As we judge another person, we point to a standard that's outside of ourselves, don't we? So go with me on this. Understand the flow here. The knowledge of that standard now condemns me, uh, not just the obvious sinner. Since you know the justice of God as evidenced by the fact that you're judging others. So in other words, if you're judging others, then you have knowledge of the standard, right? So that if you are operating out of a standard for righteousness and you judge other people, that same standard condemns you because no one rises to the the place that Jesus said, unless you're perfect, and he said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless you're perfect as my father in heaven is perfect, you won't see the kingdom of God. In other words, there's two ways to get to heaven. You can be perfect in every conceivable way, not, (laughs) or you can put faith in the finished work of Christ. That's, that's the option. He says we're without excuse because in the very act of judging others, we condemn ourselves because of the knowledge that we have to judge them. That judges us. Verse two, he says, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Now, when he says we know, he's being sort of conversational with them. He's saying, you and I know we get this, we know together that this is according to truth, according to the facts of the case. He says, you practice such things. I want you to notice that the moralist, the the moral person is not condemned again because he's judging others, but for being guilty of the same things that he is judging others for. And that's a huge distinction that we have to make from this passage. It's not about the Bible tells, and and you know what? I'm going to, I'll probably throw up if I have one more person tell me, judge not, judge not, lest you be judged. That is probably the most misinterpreted passage in all of God's word. We are told, folks, to judge righteous judgments. Besides that, that passage, when he says, judge not, lest you be judged, the the word literally uh, translates criticize. He's saying, don't be a critic. But we do judge righteous judgments. We do have judgments about the world around us. We do discern good and evil. And that's a good thing. That's something the Holy Spirit does inside of us. And he says, you who practice such things, he's, he's not saying that you're condemned because you make judgments. Be clear on that. He's saying you're condemned because you do the same thing that you're condemning other people for. Verse 3, he says, and do you think this, O man, (laughs) there's that O man again, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. (laughs) It doesn't deserve an answer. The (laughs) implication strongly is, uh, yeah, you will. The point is, if the moralist is just as guilty as the obvious sinner, How will they escape the judgment of God? That's what he's saying here. Paul's purpose here is far greater. He's not just trying to poke them for the sake of poking them. He's he's not wanting to just convict them of their unrighteousness. He needs to dismantle some bad learning that they had in Judaism. He exposes them. He exposes, he absolutely must expose their moralism and their moralizing because they regarded that as a way to escape the wrath of God. 
Well, I'm a good person. How many times have you heard that? Well, I'm a good person. What he's saying here is that's not going to cut it. Uh, it's the essence of self-centered religion. I'm a good person as though you're going to show up in heaven and God's going to pat you on the head and tell you how wonderful you are. On your own merit, never going to happen. That's the fallacy of man-centered religion. It's not the gospel. It's not based on how good or how bad a person is. It's based on, do you have the life of Christ? Have you been brought into the covenant through faith in the finished work, through understanding that that cross exists for you, that your sin was paid for on the cross, done. And by faith, if you've appropriated that in your life, this stuff doesn't even come into play. Yes, you make good judgments. Yes, you live a moral life. Yes, that's part of it. We're saved unto good works, we're told in Ephesians chapter 2. But that's never the basis for the relationship. It is a basis. What we do is a basis for judgment. We'll get to that. So in verse 4, he says, do you, or do you despise? That's a strong word. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness or the kindness, depending on the translation you're using, of God leads you to repentance? Folks, you will not win souls by Bible-bashing people. Guaranteed. It's not about beating people up. It's not about pointing out people's sin. It's about, you know what? All of us fall short of his glory. You need his grace. He understand the depth of love that God has for you. Understand that he's kind and that his kindness is toward you. And if you reject that, yes, the only thing left is wrath and judgment. That's just the way it is. That's the function of a holy God. And if you don't have that down, you need to understand that. He describes these three aspects of God's kindness to us as riches. The first, he ta- and he talks about, and we can look at that as past, present, and future sinfulness, because we are sinful. We sin. God, and when he talks about goodness, is God's kindness to us in regard to our past sin. In Ephesians 2, he says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, I love that statement, but God, being rich in mercy, saved us. He's been infinitely good to us through faith, again, in the atoning work of Christ, and that his judgment has passed, past tense, passed over us. I love the imagery of the Passover. And, and Paul used that same imagery talking about the fulfillment that it has in Christ, that with the blood and, and the lamb and, and the sacrifice for sin. God's judgment has passed over us. His wrath has passed over us. He talks about forbearance here. It's God's kindness to us in regard to our present sin. Today, this very day, probably this hour, <laughs> We've fallen short of his glory. You've got to understand the broadest definition of sin is anything that falls short of the holy perfection of God. And, and, and that's, that's a mouthful. But you know what? How far do you get into the day before you fall short of that? We are utterly reliant upon his grace, folks. Utterly reliant upon his mercy. Utterly reliant on him that, that to cleanse us continually. From sin. He talks about the fact that uh, he's long suffering. God's kindness towards us 
in regard to future sin. He knows that we will sin tomorrow and the next day. It's not an excuse for sin. It's not making sin license. I don't have a license to sin. We'll talk about that when we get to that part in Romans where they essentially asked him, well, Paul, in light of this wonderful grace that we have, can, can we just keep sinning? That'd be cool. He says, God forbid. But he knows. But God sees us clothed in the past, present, and future in the righteousness of Jesus himself. That's great news. The Jews would be seen as despising these aspects of God's kindness because in agreeing with Paul's condemnation of the Gentile world that we looked at in chapter one, they considered themselves exempt from any such judgment. That produced in them a false sense of security. And that's what he's laying them open for here for. I want to look at three reasons or three areas that produce a false sense of security for the moralistic person. This is the the, the upstanding citizen. This is the church-going person. This is the person that, uh, that he's not the abject person that we see in chapter one that's just out there and, and pipping along doing everything that he can to <laughs> live a life of debauchery. This is somebody that is living well. False security. The first is heritage. In a chapter three of the book of Philippians, the apostle Paul says, hey, I'm an Israelite. I'm of the nation of Israel. I'm, <laughs> I'm even of the tribe of Benjamin, a prestigious tribe. Benjamin's the area where Jerusalem's located. He says, man, I, I'm blameless. He hung his hat on his heritage. And the Jews did that. They were all about heritage. They were all about nationalism in the sense of they took their identity because they were Jews and they looked at as though God would excuse their individual sins because they were his favored nation in a, in a broad sense. Happens in our world. How many times have you heard, well, well I'm a Catholic. That person hasn't darkened the door of a church since they were four. Or, well, I'm a Lutheran. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Calvary Chapelite. Doesn't count. We can... We look at that person and, and, and we look and just say, look, it's not about your heritage. It's not about what your parents did. It's not about any of that. It's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. The second thing we look at is sacraments. This is an interesting one. Producing a, a false sense of security. For the Jews, it was circumcision. That's why there is so much in the New Testament about it's not about physical circumcision. That was always intended by God to be representative of cutting away the flesh from the hearts. And he said, you know, that's what circumcision represents. It's not that, that's what makes you in. That what, that's what makes you a part of the club. There's a, a basic thinking that's prevalent in many Protestant churches today. Child baptism. Baptism, baptism absolutely is a sacrament of the Christian church. As opposed to circumcision, it's similar in some ways. It's representative of, of, of being baptized into Christ, into his death and being resurrected to newness of life. It's not about being baptized as a baby. Uh, a child's baptized as an infant, sacramental act allows him entrance into the covenant. That's what's being taught. That's what's being put forth. It's a lie. How many people rely on the fact that they were baptized and then they were confirmed when they were what? What is it, 12 or whatever it is? False sense of spiritual security. 
Here's the third, spiritual pride. Another reason for this baseless security would be the mindset that says, I have not been abandoned by God to a life of scandalous immorality, like those creepy people in chapter one. Therefore, it must be that God's kindness, goodness, forbearance, patience are still smiling upon me. God must be really pleased with me. In Paul's day, it was the Jews. They were arrogant, lifted up in their own estimation of being the chosen of God. We'll look at that when we get to chapter 9 through 11 and where they fell short and the gospel was given to the Gentiles, actually to provoke them to jealousy. In our day, there are people who profess Christ, who want to uphold the moral standards of Scripture, the moralistic person. But those who are not true believers are unable to maintain an external moral value system. In other words, if you have a right relationship with God, you have been given the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says he will convict you concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, and, and that he will lead you into all truth, moral truth, as well as the, the gospel, and, and that he will glorify me. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, but you are trying to live a good moral life as a good Christian person, you'll fall short. You can't restrain your own sinfulness and your own power. It happens. And I got a caution here. It's not for us. Jesus is very clear. He says, don't you be the one who tries to figure out who is wheat and who is weeds. (laughs) Don't do it. We can't see the heart. We don't know the heart. But God does. And so we trust him with that. But it behooves us to examine our own hearts and see if if we're living by some outward or external form instead of having had the gospel impact our hearts, instead of totally letting the weight of our lives down on the work, the finished work of Christ. And then my response to that is the desire to live in a godly manner. My response to that is I want to live a morally upstanding life. My response to that is love for my brothers and my sisters that I don't possess in myself. There was a guy in my uh, in my church in California that I was in for, I don't know, close to 20 years. His name was Chris Christ. Um, his last name is spelled like Christ, but he opted to go with Christ. <laughs> I think he didn't want to be known the other way. But he was an interesting guy. He had been a Sunday school teacher for decades, years at least, maybe decades, but he was a Sunday school teacher for a long time in a Lutheran church. And man, you know, he was into it. He loved teaching Sunday school to those kids. And then uh, he wandered over to Calvary Chapel one day and he heard the gospel and he gave his life to Christ. And he, part of his testimony was, I thought I was there. I really did because I was living a moral life. I was living, I was, he was a postmaster, you know, up in Grass Valley, I think. He was a postmaster there for years and and, you know, he, and, and, he, and he would say, I really did. I thought I was there. I didn't understand the gospel. I didn't understand the power of God in my life. And when he came to the Lord, he ended up being an elder. I love serving on the board of that church with him. But it was just a great testimony to me that people can live by an external moral value system and, and, and look the part, but not be living for Christ in any meaningful way dangerous condition. Some of the hardest people to reach, by the way. 
people that think they're there. Essentially, they subtly cover their darkened hearts with cloaks of light, cloaks of righteousness. Paul here, he he reminds the self-righteous Jew that the purpose of God's kindness is not to make him feel self-satisfied, but rather to bring him to conversion. He's not saying this stuff to make him feel good. As a matter of fact, he's, if you read this, and if you were a Jew and you're reading this with an open heart, you're going to be feeling kind of beat up by this point, like, man, I need to make some changes in my life. Perhaps that's what God is doing in your life, in your heart right now. When the moralist reflects on the vices of immoral people, he should bear in mind that even if it should be true that he doesn't have any of those vices, any of those behaviors, he has nothing to boast about. It's not, I'm better than them because, and fill in the blank. It's not how it works with the Lord. The point in all of this is the absence of any number of pagan vices doesn't constitute one single virtue. You will not be virtuous by, uh, simply by the fact that you are not engaged in vice. You're vir- you, have, you have virtues because the Holy Spirit indwells you and he produces fruit in your life. It's the only way that virtuous living comes about in any way that is that, that measures in God's economy. Verse 5, he says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and in revela- and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This is a tough saying. Remember, these are the same people in chapter 1. He's saying, I can't wait to come to you. I just really want to hang out with you and have fellowship and all of that. And now he is putting the hammer down. But it's truth. And he knows that in, in fulfilling his ministry, he has to speak the truth. And it's because not because he's mad at them. He loves these people. And he wants them to have the depth that's available in Christ. Uh, when he talks about their hardness of heart, it speaks about a stubborn attitude with regard to any change in behavior. I will not. No, I will not. And I've talked with people like that. Well, that's fine. There comes a place where we need to examine our own hearts to let the walls down and allow the Spirit of God to probe our hearts. Anything less is hardness of heart. When he talks about, in verse 4, he talks about being repentant. The Greek word there is metanoia. uh, And it means to change one's mind. It means to turn. When he talks about in verse 5, the unrepentant man or woman, he puts an A in front of that word. Uh, it's, it's, in other words, there's a moral person, there's an amoral person, that means without morality. And this is what he says, that you're unrepentant. He it literally translates, you are without repentance. You are without the, the ability, or, or because of your hardness, to change your mind. You're not going to do it. That you're unrepentant. You're refusing to turn, refusing to consider. And I'll tell you what, folks, uh, there are times um, I spoke with a guy, uh, I was getting a bunch of stuff, I was working in front of my garage the other day, uh, getting a bunch of stuff ready to move and cutting up boxes and stuff. And a guy that lives a few doors down came by and, and he just wanted to engage me and he kept baiting me because he knows I'm a pastor. And uh, he knows I'm a Christian and he knows I'm a pastor, but he, and he kept trying to bait me on, on uh, how much the religious people have wrecked this country with Trump and all of this stuff. And it's like, and I'm like, nice talking to you. <laughs> I told my wife later, you know, I love sharing the gospel <laughs> and, and I, I love having an audience. <laughs> could, could you tell? Um, but I mean, I love being able to put this stuff forth. 
And yet there are times, and, and as I prayed, as I talked to this guy, I just sensed the Lord saying, don't cast your pearls before swine because he was trying to engage me so that he could fight with me about it. And I'm just not going to fight about these things. At any rate, they refused to turn and consider. I don't think that he would have heard a thing I had to say. The point is, without the protection afforded by the cross of Christ, you can't get to God because of how good a person you are, how morally you live, how spiritually oriented you are by being a member of a church. We don't have one here. We have one there. Our membership's in heaven. We'll get to that. Because you were baptized or confirmed as a child that years ago you made a decision for Christ at a summer camp. None of those things. Where is your heart regarding Christ today? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, the Bible tells us. You're going the opposite direction. That's what he's saying here. By refusing to consider these things. By having a hard, impenitent heart. Uh, In verse 5, when he says you're treasuring, you're storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's sobering. What he's saying is that for the unregenerate person, whether they are immoral or they are moralistic, that if they're outside of Christ, that they are adding wrath, divine anger to their account as they go. Remember, the the basis of God's judgment is thoughts, words, and deeds. Things you think, things you say, and things you do. And what he's saying here is that you are storing up wrath for judgment if you are outside of the covenant, if you are outside of Christ, that you actually store that up, that you're building it up. Now contrast that to inexhaustible grace. For the believer, you can't outsend the grace of God. That's further in Romans as well. For the believer, he, he, he will not, does not, and, and, and permanently will not look at you according to your sinfulness. It's gone. That's the whole, the doctrine of sanctification that we're going to get into in coming weeks, folks, that we have been given so much grace that, that we will never exhaust his grace. So either you're in this, you're this person who is storing up wrath, who is actually adding the wrath of God, the righteous anger of God to your account, and you're actually adding more every time you fall short or that's been canceled, taken out of the way. And his love for you, his, his unmerited favor towards you, which is the definition of grace, is in such abundance that he'll never run out. Which one do you want? Inexhaustible grace is beyond wonderful. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, John writes, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The word propitiation, we'll get it, it's, it's further on in Romans here as well. It means to absorb wrath. That's what it means. That's a, a literal definition is that you're either storing up wrath or because Jesus was the propitiate. He was the one who absorbed the wrath of God for you. Past, present, future. That's why the gospel is called good news. I can't think of better news from an eternal perspective. Verse 6, who will render to each one according to his deeds. So now he's talking about things you do, deeds. 
<laughs> is Paul saying here that salvation comes by works? Of course not. <laughs> we know that. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. That's what we're told. But he is saying that judgment will be according to works. The context here is judgment, not salvation. Yes, we are saved utterly by his grace. Nothing to do with our works. But judgment for the believer and the unbeliever will be based on works. Clear in God's word. Matthew 16, 26 and 27. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the son of man will come in the glory of his father, will come in the glory of his father with his angels, and then he will reward, recompense, repay each according to his works. Interesting. In verse 7, talking about the works here, he says, eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for honor, for glory, honor, and immortality. So as we look at this, we look at there are two judgments that are outlined in the word of God. The first is called the judgment seat of Christ. And he's talking about that guy in verse 7. And what it is, is called the Bema seat. And in, in, in the first century, in, in the ancient world, they held, and it was left over from the Greek empire, they held Olympic games. They held competitions. And what would happen in these games is that the victor would be, they, he would be brought up onto the, the stand and they had a big chair there and it was called the bema. And he would go, if he won the games, he would go and he'd sit in this chair and then they would put a laurel wreath around his head. That was what they did instead of medals. And so a great picture there in the book of Revelation, we're told that when we receive the crown of righteousness, that wreath in the Bema seat, that we will take it off and throw it and cast it at the feet of Jesus because it's only because of his righteousness in our lives that we are able to do anything that counted for the kingdom to begin with. But the Bema seat is real and it's something that every believer will go to. We will be judged at the Bema seat. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11 says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. That's the right attitude of a child of God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done. There's the works thing, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So what he's saying here is that we will be judged for the things we've done in the body, whether they are good or they are bad. What he, what, and the way that that works uh, is in 1 Corinthians, he gives us a glimpse of that in that he talks about things, the works that we've done in the body will be consumed with fire. Fire is representative in God's word of judgment. Okay, so what he's talking about is in that judgment, the things that we have done that were from impure motives, the things that we did maybe to be seen, the things that we did uh, that, were, that were not going to count, that they would be consumed with fire as wood, hay, and stubble. They would be burned up. They're gone. So there's no penalty in that. They're just taken up. They're consumed. The things that we did in the body that we did with pure motives, the things that we did for good intentions, the things that we did to glorify and to honor God in our lives will be consumed, will be burned with fire, but they will be as gold and silver and precious gems. 
They will be saved. They will, they will endure the fire of God's judgment. The beam of judgment weighs that out. And I like the way that one man put it. He said, you know, it's all by his grace. It's all because of his righteousness. What that results in is that some of us will have thinner files than the others. We do know that in the millennium that Jesus will, that we will rule and reign with him. And I believe that part of how that comes about is what happens at the Bema Seat. That's interpretation, take it or leave it, but it makes sense. So there is a judgment for believers. And it's not a judgment that is punitive because it's because of the blood of Christ that we escape wrath. So there's no wrath involved. It's not a wrathful judgment at all. It's a weighing of the things, the deeds that we've done. Verse 8, he says, But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath. Now, when he talks about indignation here, the Greek word is fascinating on that. It's the Greek word thumos. It's where we get the word thermal. He's talking about hot anger. He's talking about, it literally translates boiling up. His fierce, it's a fierce outburst of anger that he's talking about in verse 8 when he says indignation and wrath. In verse 9, tribulation and anguish, intense trouble and pain on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. It's the second time that he has used that term of the Jew first and also the Greek. The first was in chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Here he says it again. He's going to say it again in chapter in verse 10. We'll get to that. The second judgment that we see where he's talking about, this is the one uh, that, that where indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish comes in, is what's called the great white throne of judgment. Right out of the book of Revelation chapter 20, in, in verses 11 through 15, He says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. This is personal. It's not just an empty throne. From whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. See, judgment is on the basis of works. Salvation's on the basis of grace by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it and the death in Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That is about as intense as it gets. Folks, this is the disposition for the immoral as well as the moral person who's outside of Christ. That's Paul's point here in this passage. It's not, yes, your response to the gospel should be a life that you desire to live in the open. Like John says in in one of his letters, I think it's first John, he says, walk in the light as he is in the light. That's the desire of my heart. I want to walk in the light. Have I always? No. But that was then, and this is now, and I want to walk in the light. Verse 10, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. One more uh, 
verse out of the book of Revelation is Jesus is testifying to the churches. He's talking about rewards now. Uh, he says, and behold, in, in Revelation twenty two twelve, and behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give or to render to everyone according to his work. So Paul repeats the term here. He says to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the same as he did in chapter one, verse 16 with regard to the gospel. So the question is, what, what does he mean in this? Well, the Jew first, he repeats it for emphasis. It's one thing that you could get out of it. The Jew was first in opportunity because he had been given God's special revelation. He had been given the gospel. The Jew was the keeper of the oracles of God. He was the, the, the one who stewarded the Old Testament. And so the Jew still has a very special place in God's economy, it has a very special place in the plan of God. He's not done with her yet. The salvation, and salvation went to her first. Jesus told the Samaritan woman that salvation was from the Jews. Thus the Jews were first in both blessings and judgment because they were God's chosen people. If the Jews are first in line for the gospel, as we see in Romans 1.16, they were first in line, went to the Jew first. And first in line for rewards, as we see here in chapter, in verse 10, then they're also first in line for God's judgment. Verse 11, the reason for that, for there's no partiality with God. In the King James, it's rendered, God is no respecter of persons. Interesting, when he, the word partiality here, it, it's an Old Testament judicial term. It's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We see this word, and it's used in a number of places. I'm not going to go into them. But it's a judicial term. And what it literally means, it, partiality literally, literally translates to lift the face. To lift the face. And what's intended by it, the word picture that would be communicated, and these people would know exactly what was being said, is that if a judge to whom someone was uh, administering justice, if there was a chance for bias with the judge, the person who was being adjudicated, the person who was on trial, would not lift his face to the one who stood before him. In other words, he's saying there's no partiality. I'm not going to be biased because now I know who you are. Now I see who you are. It would be concealed. His face would be concealed from the judge. And that's what he's talking about here, is that, that God is absolutely impartial. He's colorblind. He is racially blind. The only thing that he has to do with is sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what we're told in the Gospel of John. I think also that Paul doesn't want the Romans to get the idea that the Jews, even though they were favored, they weren't superior. Because he says in his other letters, there's no difference between Jew and Greek, slave or free, male or female even. It's not talking about gender. He's just talking about equality. That's why so much of the political rhetoric that's out there these days, I absolutely reject. On the basis of God's word, I reject that. I, I will not bow to man's racist theories because God's word's already covered that. That's a settled issue in my life and I don't have to revisit it. It's not a thing. Uh, it's one of the things I, I've mentioned to people is that what our society is doing is they're trying to make a thing that's not a thing, a thing. And I'm not buying it. And I invite you to have that opinion if you want. But, uh, you know, I'm going to base my life, I'm going to base my prejudices 
on the word of God. And he's not a partial judge. He's an absolutely perfectly impartial judge. We don't lift the face. Praise God. As we wrap up, I want to make an observation in general from the scripture that we see uh, part of here. There are two births in the Bible. We've seen here that there are two deaths. We looked at the second death a couple of times. We see also that there are two judgments. If you don't know Christ, or perhaps you have been going along thinking that you know Christ and you realize that there's something missing, that you've been a moralistic person, but You've never really transacted with him in the way that we're talking about here. Perhaps you're relying on infant baptism. Perhaps you're relying on an event that happened years ago. But you want to walk with him. The Bible says you have to be born again. You have to be born of the flesh. That's a physical birth. And you have to be born of the spirit. To be born from above is literally how that is worded in the Gospel of John chapter 3. So there are two births available. You're either born twice, born physically and born spiritually, and you have one death unless the Lord comes and takes us all out of here, which I pray happens today. (laughs) But if you have had two births, there's only one death. There's a physical death. The second death will never affect you. But if you're born once and you have rejected Christ, the finished work of Jesus on that cross, dying for your sins, for everything you've ever ever thought, said, or done. That's what he died for. If you reject that, you're born once, you're born physically, but you don't get the second birth. You're not going to be born again, born from above. That's the person who will experience two deaths, a physical death and the second death that we're seeing here. I shudder. Folks, this stuff is real. It's really going to happen. And people are going to stand before either the great white throne or the judgment seat of Christ. And it'll be based on their choice of what to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. My heart is perhaps more burdened than it has ever been as a Christian. I've been a Christian for going on 40 years to be able to share. Yeah, there are times like with that guy that wanted to, <laughs> just wanted to fight. Yeah, that, that happens. But, but to be able to sit down with people and to say, look, let me tell you what's at stake. Let me tell you about the love that's available. Let me tell you about the heart of God. Let me tell you that it doesn't matter how wretchedly you've lived your life, there's hope. Let me tell you that if you've been a good person all your life and a Sunday school teacher at uh, Lutheran or whatever, that you may not know Christ. Let me, let me explain to you the gospel, the good news that's found in God's word. I believe that we are at the end, uh, that we're in the last of the last days. At some point, we will cross over from the last days to the end times. And I think we're bumping right up against it, folks. And I'm not saying that as preacher's rhetoric. I believe that. You look out, you see the signs of the times. You look out, Jesus, you know, he, he told the religious leaders, said, you know what? You discern the weather. You look out, see the sky's red, you see you know, in the morning or in the evening. And he says, you discern the weather, but you're, you're failing to discern the signs of the times. Time is short. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Every single one of us. I've heard people before say, well, my ministry is mainly to the 
people at the church. No, I would disagree with that. We have all been given the ministry of reconciliation. I'm not saying that to head trip you. But in your sphere, the people that you have influence with, share the gospel. Be bold. Take a chance on them not liking you. Because that could happen. Take a chance. Eternity is at stake. It's called the Great Commission. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, I'm just, just so taken by your word today. Lord, light a fire in our hearts. Lord, give us boldness. Give us insight. Give us, just anoint us for service to reach out, to not just bring people to church. Yeah, we want to see that. But, but to bring people to the kingdom, to bring people to Christ, to carry wounded people to the place where they can find ultimate healing. Lord, we need you to do it. We can't do it in our own strength. We're not going to try to do this because we're religious people. We want to do this because we have your strength. We have your ability. We have your gifts in our lives. Stir us up to love and good works as your word proclaims. We yield to you, Lord. We yield to the working of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that you would deliver us from misconceptions that we have as you work your perfect will in our lives. We're so grateful for your grace. We couldn't stand for five seconds without it. And we're just grateful that you have washed us in the blood of the Lamb. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.